0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.
1: Hi there, and welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman, a media producer type guy. Joining me today is my very special guest co-host, Moda Sabani. Hi, Mona.
0: Hi, Jim. I'm so glad to be here with you.
1: Mona is a cognitive neuroscientist, author, and entrepreneur, a former research scientist at the University of Southern California. She holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She's the author of the book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomenon, Phenomena a neuroscientist discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. She's the co-founder of Exploring Consciousness. It's great to have you as my co-host. I think I forced you to come on. You were on as a guest not that long ago. And, <laughs> and now you're you're forced to uh, serve in this capacity. But thank you for doing that.
0: Well, I'm such a fan. It's not really forcing it's pleasure to be here.
1: <laughs> so okay. what is the what is the group Exploring Consciousness?
0: Oh, yeah, that's our group of curious neuroscientists, although it's expanded to scientists. So um, the way it started was a collaborator and I organized a neuroscience and spirituality social at the largest neuroscience conference. So every year we have this big conference where 30,000 neuroscientists come. I actually learned it's the largest science conference in the US now.
2: Wow. Um,
0: So we went there last year. We, yeah. Yeah. And we had the social and we advertised it like, have you ever had an experience you can't explain with science? And we put up flyers everywhere and I thought no one would come. And we had such a tiny room, but 50 scientists showed up. The room was like overflowing. They, we didn't have enough chairs. They stayed the whole three hours. So then we created a group so everyone could stay in touch and we could send them references and resources like books to read podcasts like yours, <laughs> um, to where they could learn more about anomalous phenomena or things that we can't explain with science yet so that's what the group is and we have a new letter that we send out highlighting, um you know like podcasts and books and stories and tv shows uh monthly like things that we find interesting that they might find interesting so
1: very cool Uh, well you know as we talked about
0: exploring consciousnesses
1: well, you know, I think it's fascinating, uh, your journey from skeptic to being, you know, open to possibilities. And it's, um, it's really cool to have your perspective on that. And, and anybody who's interested in, in Mona's book, please go back and listen to the podcast. That's all about that, because it's, it's really interesting stuff.
0: I think you guys ask the best questions of any interview.
1: Well, I like, I like that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I think uh, our talk with Emily Grossman, who is the author of Unlocked, uh, is going to be really interesting. We'll talk with her about her experience with mental illness, both on the inside and working with those on the outside, so to speak. Um, And she she has a really interesting story that she really persevered and thrived. And she's going to give us some of the keys from her book. So I I think that's going to be awesome. Um, Right off the bat, I want to give our listeners a resource if they're having a mental health crisis. If you're thinking of suicide or having a crisis, you can call or text 988 in the U.S. and get some guidance. I think that's very important to know and just to put out there. So, Mona, do you have a quote for us today?
0: I do. Um, Okay, so it reads like this. The stars are like letters which inscribe themselves at every moment in the sky. Everything in the world is full of signs. All events are coordinated. All things depend on each other. As has been said, everything breathes together. And it's by plotness.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, here's mine. And I stole this from Emily's book. You are a child of the universe, no less than than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it's clear to you. No doubt, the universe is unfolding as it should, and that's Max Erman from his uh, prose poem *Desert Dorada*.
0: They're kind of we both we both um, referenced stars.
1: We did. <laughs> must yeah. be some must be something in the universe for us today.
0: It's because everything breathes together, right? It all flows together.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, are you ready to get into the interview? Absolutely. Emily Grossman is an award-winning peer life coach, speaker, and author. She's received several awards for her work, including the National Council for Mental Wellbeing's Peer Specialist of the Year Award and Mental Health News Education Self-Advocacy Award. For the last 15 years, Emily has worked in mental health, beginning her work on the front lines as a peer specialist and then transitioning to mental health provider training and systems change work at large organizations such as Columbia University's Psychiatry Department and the New York Association of Psychiatric Rehabilitation Service. She is the author of the book "Unlocked: From Psych Hospital to Higher Self," which chronicles her bipolar recovery journey and offers readers twenty-five keys to recovery. She has a master's degree from Columbia University. Emily, welcome to Big Universe.
2: Thank you so much, Jim. It's so great to be here.
1: It's so great to have you. you ha- you've had quite the journey.
2: I have.
1: I can't wait to uh, can't wait to talk to you about it. Um, so I really appreciate your book and, you know, your mental health journey, your willingness to be candid about uh, your experiences. So that's that's awesome because a lot of people don't get this perspective and get the opportunity to hear some, from someone who's traveled the journey and has, you know, successfully managed their situation. So thank you so much for writing the book.
2: Oh, thank you, Jim. You know, I, I really just want to help people. And so I decided to put myself out there in this way because, One in five of us in the U.S. experience a mental health um, struggle in their lifetime. And so, you know, for every five people you know, one of them is going through this and even more are touched by this um, with family members. So I just, I really wanted to give support and give an insider look on not only how you can experience, how people experience this, but how they get well from it.
1: Awesome. And I can, I'll confess myself that I've had various uh, deep bouts with uh, depression in my lifetime. So I know I have experienced that and I I take medication for that. Um, And uh, so I I certainly respect and understand the journey from my perspective.
2: Thank you, Jim. You know, I really appreciate that you disclosed that because It's my belief, and there's been research on this, that the more people who share openly about this, the more the awful stigma around mental illness starts to go away. So thank you for sharing your experience.
1: Absolutely. So I guess my first question is, or my first um, request is that you tell us a little bit about your life experience with mental illness and your, your journey on that path.
2: Sure. So... You know, I will start with when I was about 18 years old. Um, Before that time, I did relatively well in school. I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities in high school. I was, um, you know, I I was someone who was a go-getter. And um, what started to happen in my first semester at Emory University is that I started having really bad panic attacks. And this was in 1996, so I didn't know much about panic attacks. People weren't talking about it that much. Um, I had very little exposure to people that experienced mental illness, and so I just thought I was dying. I thought I was making the biggest mistake of my life by starting to not go to class, and I thought it was my fault. So it became very serious very quickly, and. Um, I then started experiencing deep depression and even some suicidal thoughts. And when it got to that severity, um, my parents and my treatment team and I kind of all agreed that I needed to come home. And so I did come home thinking I would go right back, but um, I was hospitalized almost immediately. while I was in the hospital, um, they realized that it was more than just depression and anxiety because I had a manic episode. Um, and so I started um, my journey at living as a person who was diagnosed with bipolar two disorder. Bipolar two disorder meaning that most of the time you hang out in the depressive side, but because you've had a, I've had a few manic episodes in my lifetime, I'm considered bipolar. So that was the beginning of the journey and while I did transfer, I transferred to Rutgers and um, was in college again. I, I was also as many as much as I was in college I had to t- take a step back often to go into a treatment facility that was nearby luckily to, to Rutgers but that happened um, probably about uh, a dozen times and um i experienced symptoms ranging from suicidal ideation to depression to anxiety to something called psychosis which for for people who don't know what that is it's both having delusional thoughts and and being detached from reality as well as sometimes seeing and hearing things that aren't there so i wrote my graduation papers while i was experiencing psychosis wow Yeah. And um, from there, I did graduate, but um, was really not in good shape and was trying to get full-time jobs and just couldn't, was not functioning well in society. And that is when they started considering me and they actually interviewed me for the state hospital. And this would have been a placement with no end date in mind. And you know, it was truly institutionalization, and I became very, very scared because I—I um, I, one thing I always knew about myself is that I wanted to make a difference in the world. I didn't know how, but I knew that once those doors locked behind me in the state institution, I was not going to have the ability to do that, and that, that really scared me. And um, that fear created some sheer will that started me on my path to recovery. But, um, you know, from there, it was a number of things that I write about in my book that really got me just from surviving in the world to really thriving. And so, um, you know, that's why I wrote my story.
1: So what was it like for the hospitalizations? I mean, what was that experience like? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, so very scary. Um, I was 18 when I was first hospitalized on an adult unit because they considered 18 year olds adults. So I was there with people whose illnesses had really progressed. And I really thought that that was how my life was going to turn out, too. And so that part was very scary. It was very scary seeing, you know, some of the treatments that they gave people when they were. "Quote unquote," out of control on a psychiatric ward, including injections and things like that. It was a terrifying place to be. And interestingly, the more I was there, the harder it got for me to experience living outside the hospital. I, I you know, I, I, I tell people that the hospital, the psychiatric hospital, really gets inside of you, mm-hmm. as you're inside of the psychiatric hospital. And what I mean by that is. You know, on the one hand, it's a really hard place to be. On the other hand, you're not having to do the daily living tasks that one would have to do to survive in the outside world. Laundry, paying bills, food shopping, you know, and so... They're so
1: missing those skills.
2: They're missing skills. And I was mm-hmm. at, a, at a very um, pivotal point in my own life because I didn't have many of those skills yet because I was a college student.
1: Right. So you you found your way to becoming a peer specialist, and that's quite impressive. You know, tell me what a peer specialist is.
2: A peer specialist is someone who is living with a mental health struggle, who comes into recovery, and then helps others to recover. And I got there by a kind of circuitous route as I was starting to... Um, get a little better, I actually got into grad school to be a teacher and I was in grad school at Columbia University and while I was there, um, I started, I I was conflicted because as much as I did want to be a teacher, I also wanted to make a difference in mental health. So I graduated and once I graduated, I started teaching But I really still was thinking about mental health a lot, and my students were coming to me with their own mental health challenges. And as someone who had a lot of empathy, I couldn't do much because I was a teacher. And so little by little, I started to realize that this was really my higher self, my higher power, whatever you want to call it, um, moving me in a direction towards mental health but I could not afford to take out another loan to be a social worker. And then I found that there was this program that trains you to be a peer provider and or a peer specialist, which like I said, is someone who helps others to recover based on their own lived experience of a mental health challenge. And so that's how I started in the mental health world. And it was really just such a wonderfully healing experience when you realize that you have gone through such difficult challenges, not just for yourself, not just, not just that they've been challenges that you've had to overcome, but to help others as well. That is just such a
0: beautifully healing experience. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, what was the first thing that proved helpful in turning things around?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. So the very, very first thing um, was fear and will. When I was in the um, psychiatric hospital and they were interviewing me for the state hospital, that was the beginning where I started to have so much fear that I was gonna end up um, you know, being someone who was gonna be locked up and that was it. So fear was the first and having a sheer will to recover. But once I got into graduate school, I found um, a meditation practice and a meditation philosophy that really started to transform my life. It got me, like I was saying earlier, from surviving to thriving again and and really starting to feel like myself. Um, Another thing that really helped was dialectical behavior therapy which is-
1: I have no food. idea what that means. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, I will. I'm happy to share like you. a
1: That's like a word soup to me. Go ahead. It <laughs> is
2: a word soup. And, and in mental health, we have a lot of acronyms for everything. So okay. they call it DBT. So um, what dialectical behavior therapy is, is put simply um, a therapy where they teach you coping skills to manage difficult relationships and manage intense emotions, and to build what they call a life worth living. And before I was um, experiencing DBT and really living the coping strategies that they teach, I didn't know there were coping strategies to manage intense emotions. Somehow I I didn't get that memo. So, and I, I really, think that when you're experiencing emotions that are of the intensity of bipolar or another mental illness, it feels like you're out of control completely and there's no hope. So learning the coping strategies of dialectical behavior therapy or DBT really, really helped along with meditation,
0: which became one
2: of my biggest coping strategies.
0: When I was reading your book, one thing that's struck me was the use of this word recovery which is interesting because it means something completely different in the case of mental health versus when you think of physical illness right um and I kind of wanted to ask about your thoughts on that On like do you think it's a appropriate word do you like the word how does it feel to you because it does feel like it's well let me not put my opinion on it let me just ask you I'll stop there <laughs> Uh, Thank
2: you for asking that.
0: Yeah. So I do think that
2: recovery is a good word for it, because when recovery, in my definition of it, and my experience of it, is that I have overcome not functioning in the world. I've overcome being institutionalized over and over again. And I live a great life. I am I have a career. I am independent from my family. You know, I have great friends and a great experience of life. And for the most part, I don't have symptoms of my mental illness and have not for 15 years. So, um, you know, I, when I say I don't have symptoms, I don't experience deep depression. I don't have the high highs of mania. I you know, and I don't experience psychosis and have not for 15 years. So, um, that to me is what I consider recovery.
0: Yeah. And that's amazing. Um, in the mental health sphere, there's very few, um, therapeutics and very few, um, behavioral therapies that actually work as well as what you've described. So that's, that's just incredible.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I just believe that it's available to people, but we talk so often about recovery in the addictions arena, but we don't, aren't talking about it with mental health and, and mental illnesses. And so part of my, um, part of my mission with this book is to get the word out there that recovery actually can happen because, you know, it's kind of like that, um,
0: the myth that it can't holds a lot of people back. Actually, I thought that was, that was so striking in the book, how you point out how in the system, almost everyone you interacted with from doctors to nurses kind of treated you with the assumption that you would not be recovering or that. And I think that that really, that plays a very big role on how your psyche, right? Like integrates with your, your whole mind, body, spirit situation. It's kind of sets you up for, you know, that at a lower level, um, did you I, you you talk about in the book beautifully I just throwing it out there in case you wanted to say anything extra about that because I thought that was very poignant and very um important to bring up.
2: Yeah, you know, there is one other thing I wanted to say about that, which is that they talk about something that they've studied called clinicians' illusion, which is basically, if we put it very um, simply, I am a clinician. I work in an inpatient unit. I only see people coming to me in crisis. Therefore, I believe that that is what a person with mental illness looks like because people don't necessarily come back and say, "Hey, I'm recovered now. Thank you." I wish they did, but they don't. And so, you know, that's that plays into this idea that people don't get well. And I think that's understandable that there's a clinician's illusion, because that's what they're seeing. But I also think it's problematic.
1: You mentioned earlier about um, connection with a higher power. And that's one of key number four in your book, in your book of keys, you say find your higher power. I, I'm wondering, what does that word mean to you? Or what do those words mean to you? First off? And then from your lens, you know, you kind of come at it from a Buddhist lens as well. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I do come from a Buddhist lens, but in my book, I try to keep it as general as possible so that it can be accessible to more people. So I write about the higher power in many different ways. And every time I'm talking about a higher power, I capitalize the words Um, so that people know I'm talking about the same thing. And to me, um, whatever higher power you believe in, I do believe that it can work for this situation. So when I talk about a higher power, I, in my Buddhist practice, we talk about the mystic law, which is beyond, we call it mystic because it's beyond human comprehension. But it's basically the, Uh, an energy of the universe that guides all things. It's the energy that has created um, flowers and plants. It's the energy that created you and me. It's the energy that created the earth. And so um, we believe that when you chant, you're connecting this mystic law with your highest and best self. And that, that highest and best self comes out, we call it your Buddha self, comes out when you are connected to the greater universe so while I want to just go on record and say I don't know what the truth is a hundred percent because it's beyond human comprehension and right my who mind.
1: does right yeah.
2: yeah yeah that's that's my belief about it but in the book I try to keep it open to many different beliefs because to me the point is that whatever you believe in, in terms of a higher power, it can help you with your recovery.
1: So I guess my question is, how did you learn to trust the sense of the universe despite all your experiences? I mean, you had a lot of harrowing experiences. How did you get to that place where you felt like you could have a level of trust with the universe? That's
2: such a good question. Yeah, so I... um made a, a deep effort to learn. I was raised Jewish and I made a deep effort to understand the God of my childhood. And so, and I am not, you know, I think Judaism is a beautiful religion and I I really understand that. But at the same time, the way I learned about God in my um, synagogue of origin was that God um, was almost when you read the Torah, almost like a human. <laughs> he um, punished, he was a he and he punished and he um, took away things when you weren't good. And so I really believed that I was being punished and that's why I had a mental illness. And so I carried that with me for a long time and I, I talked to different rabbis about it and I was trying to make sense of it. But it just wasn't resonating with me personally. And again, deep respect for my um, fellow Jews in the world but it just that belief wasn't resonating with me. And so I then, um, when I was in graduate school was exposed to Buddhism and the way they described the mystic law and the way they described the philosophy was that if you have an obstacle, it's an opportunity to grow. And I've added to that, that I believe that these obstacles, the things that bring us to our knees are actually invitations from our higher power asking us to come closer. Because these are the very things, these obstacles that cause us to do the deeper work spiritually that get us more connected you know if I didn't have these kind of obstacles I would not have sought out a practice like this um and I certainly wouldn't continue it for the last 18 years of my life because if it if I got everything I wanted right away I would have said thank you very much goodbye right (laughs) right right. so I just really believe that you know that's kind of that was kind of my journey with that
0: and um in the book you also, talk about I love this. Um, a, a mantra that you adopted and that you would chant, um, in, either in a daily ritual or in times of difficulty. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure, absolutely. So, the mantra that I chant is Nam Myoho Renge Hyo. So, and I say it over and over again. Um, and there's something, and I'll I'll tell you what the meaning is and all of that in a moment, but I had tried many different forms of meditation and I could not quiet my mind enough with like mindfulness meditation, breathing, even guided meditation somehow. I I do enjoy guided meditation, but it wasn't in the beginning, something that quieted the mind. But there was something about saying a chant out loud over and over again, that started to really quiet my mind and bring me back into the present. And I also started to notice that my symptoms got less and less severe, the more I chanted. So nam Yoho renge kyo means um, you are pledging your devotion to the mystic law. So the higher power in that case, you're pledging your devotion to the mystic law of cause and effect through sound. So basically, we really believe in, in my practice that everything you do, making a cause, has an effect just waiting to come out. And that's a big part of the practice is really, is really um, chanting that you are able to make better causes in the world so that positivity comes out. And we also really chant to bring out our highest and best self and our happiest self. Because we really believe that when you are truly happy, you treat the next person much better. And through a ripple effect, world peace starts to spread. So that's a little bit about the chant. Um, In the beginning, I was just chanting about very basic things, you know, chanting to um, get a job after after grad school because I took out such a big loan. I was chanting to... Be able to move back to New Jersey you know very basic things and we believe that earthly desires lead to enlightenment and what that means is that you know the very things that I'm I need food closing clothing shelter bring me um, to chant and those and as I'm chanting I am bringing out my highest and best self my enlightened self so it's like, it doesn't matter what gets you started, Channing. It's that you keep going with it. And little by little, your enlightened self will come out, your higher self. I
1: love that. I love that. that sounds wonderful. I love wonderful. that. I'm going to have to try. Yeah, I'm going to have to try that uh, that mantra. That sounds really wonderful. Because I have difficulty sometimes. I try to meditate in the mornings. Um, I, I'm not as regular about it as I, I need to be. I want to be um but it's about quieting the mind and my mind races so it's it's definitely something that i can i can look into a mantra might be really helpful to me
2: yes yes it has been really life-changing
1: let's dive a little bit into the keys that you talk about in your book and the first one you talk about is key number one follow your bliss and i know that was made famous by joseph campbell of course. what does that mean to you and how did you learn to follow your bliss?
2: So I was um, a teenager and I encountered Mrs. Collins, this English teacher that just changed my life. Um, She really, and I'm, I'm actually in touch with her to this day. So, and she's become a friend, but at the time, um, she introduced us to Joseph Campbell and this idea that if you follow your bliss, the universe will open doors where there were only walls. I believe that's a loose trans that, that's a loose um, explanation of the quote, but the idea really being that you know so many of our life choices, if we make them based on what makes us truly happy, that is the best way of making a choice because, you know, and and so basically every choice I've made, whether it be a career choice or whether it be a personal choice, I've made it in a way that I knew I was following what made me truly happy versus chasing after money or versus chasing after accolades, um, I was, I've always been really keyed into what can make me truly happy in this moment. And I think as a person who has experienced suicidal thoughts in her life, this is not just something I do. This is something I need to do to stay alive, you know, is to really make sure that I am happy first and foremost.
1: Because if you're not happy, you can't really, you can't really help other people in learning about themselves.
2: No, absolutely not, yeah. And also, if I'm not happy, I, I'm i just not my best self, you know? And that's not to say, like, I, I hear a lot about toxic positivity and some of that stuff. This isn't a Pollyanna kind of happiness, you know? This is a making choices based on what feeds my soul instead of what societal norms are and what people think you should do you know
1: it is very much about choices you know we have that decision point in everything and all the information that comes to us we have a decision point on what we what we choose to believe and what we choose to go forward even if there's something complex going on in the universe or in the world we can make choices that can either help the situation or 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 make the situation worse both externally and internally.
2: Yes, yes. And I have gone gotten to this place where I realized that my sphere of influence is the only thing I really have control over. I can't control politics. I can't besides voting obviously, but I can't on a, on a macro level control politics. I can't control war and peace and, you know, I can't control a lot of things in the world, but what I can control is when I follow my bliss, I know I'm treating the people around me better. And I know that that is going to help them to treat others better. Like I was saying earlier, and peace starts with the individual and in our individual spheres of influence, not a greater, not on the greater scale. If that makes
0: sense. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I think I've also noticed too on my spiritual path, like sometimes the people around you can really help or um, not hinder, but it feels like sometimes you come into conflict <laughs> with others as you get deeper into your own interests. Um, but I want to ask about that. One of your, your keys mentioned finding your people, and I know how important it is to find people you know you resonate with that support you and like to have this community. So. I wanted to ask what that means for you.
2: Yeah, I,
0: you know, I've
2: been very, very blessed that I um, was raised by two parents that are very social and not just social, but they are good friends, truly good friends to all of their friends. I mean, it's it's amazing. Some of their, all of their friends think that they're my parents' best friends. And I love that, you know, because that's how they treat everyone. And so I developed some really important social skills from my parents. And that helped me a lot when I was going through a mental health crisis because I was able to still assimilate back into college. I I would be in college and then I'd be in the hospital and then I'd have to assimilate back and and still building friendships along the way. And so, You know, I learned early to find my people and to hang on to them as much as I could and to be the best kind of friend that I could. And there's this quote, only connect. And I love that because, and I talk about that in my book as well, that if we seek um, the ways we are connected to people rather than the ways that we are different. We're really on a much better path in life, you know. And so I credit my recovery. I credit the reason this book is published was published to many, several friends that either gave me ideas about the book. One of my friends led me to my publisher. Um, one of my friends. I had this book on the shelf for about five years, and finally I let my best friend read it, and she said, "You need to get this published," you know. So that's you know, that those kind of friends are the kind of people I mean, when I say find your people. And it's about being that kind of person. And that's how you maintain those kind of relationships.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because mental illness can feel very isolating. And so yeah. do, you, do you have suggestions on ways you can connect to people?
2: Yeah, that that's a very important question. And I think one that we um, in our society right now, you know, they've said that isolation is a public health crisis and loneliness is a public health crisis. I, my biggest suggestion is to not stand on ceremony, and what I mean by that is, I have just accepted in my life that I'm going to be the reacher outer with most of my friends, and not because they're bad people, and not because. For any other reason, but because we all get into our routines and and work and life and things get busy, and most people are not reacher outers. So I never take that personally. Instead, I just make the commitment that I'm going to check up on people, and I also pray for people when I'm chanting. I have a whole list of people I'm chanting for, so that reminds me of. The people that are so important in my life. And when I, when I, after I chant, I'll check in on a couple via text or I'll, I'll do something very strange. I'll pick up the phone and I'll call <laughs> some
1: <somebody>. That's unheard <laughs> of today.
2: You text people, you don't, you don't actually
1: talk on the phone.
2: I know. And I sometimes I don't even set up an appointment with them. I just <laughs> get a text, I just pick up my phone and I call, you know? But I think that things like that are a lost art, you know? And so, but I found that because of that, I've amassed a very rich and full social life with a lot of people that I just adore, you know? And by not standing on ceremony, I don't hold grudges when I don't hear from people. I just assume that they're busy or they need some time. And then I try again, you know?
0: I love that. I've like, there are so few people like that in the world. I think that that's really commendable. I, yeah, I feel like I used to be like that. And then when I got older, I'm like, how come no one reaches out to me? So this is, this is a nice reminder um, to not think that (laughs) to be the one to just keep calling.
2: Yeah. And I think people appreciate it. Not, you know, I mean, obviously there's a line right between, you know, just, you know, not standing on ceremony and going overboard with Right, it.
1: stalking someone is not advised. Right.
2: yes no i'm not this is not a a podcast about stalking by any means but um yeah but i think most people are pleasantly surprised when i reach out and also when i reach out i ask specific questions about things i remember about them from the last time we talked so it's not just a random reach out. I'm saying, hey, you know, I, I know you just had a baby. How are you doing? You know, things like that. Yeah,
0: very thoughtful and caring.
1: <laughs> How did you learn to trust your instincts, which is key number five? How did you learn to trust your instincts? Because especially someone with, you know, dealing with mental illness, and I can say from my experience is sometimes. Those thoughts are not your instincts and you get confused. How did you learn to trust your instincts?
2: Yes, it's a really good question. So first of all, I have learned over the years that not every thought I think in my head is true. And that's like this big epiphany for me. I know it sounds obvious to most people, but- No, no,
1: I totally get that, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so there's a difference though between, you know, trusting every thought you have, and trusting your intuition. So intuition for me, when I get quiet and when I chant, I find that my mind settles down and then I hear another voice. It's not my thinking head and it's hard to explain it, but it's just a knowing. It's a wise-minded knowing That this is the right thing to do. And very often, it's not the thought, it's not something I've been thinking about. It's just something that comes out of left field, you know, that I'm like, whoa, that's a thought, that's an idea. And so I know that it isn't, it's coming from my higher self, but it's not coming from my ego self, you know. And I consider the ego self the thinking mind that runs and runs and runs, you know. So I have learned, first of all, when I, when something is wrong, I feel it physically. I feel, and I write about this in the book, it feels like a tightness in my throat. And that feeling lets me know that something is up, something is off, you know? And so um, once I get that tightness in my throat, I take a step back, I chant and eventually I hear what I need to hear about the situation. And I've learned to really trust that a lot more. Um, When I was younger, I would completely ignore it. (laughs) As
1: most young people do, it seems.
2: Yeah. And I didn't have the, you know, with the impulsivity of bipolar disorder, I didn't have that ability to pause, you know, and part of listening to one's intuition is pausing enough to get quiet enough to really hear what, what you need to hear from the universe, you know? So um, that's a little bit about how I trust my intuition. And when, and I know immediately when I take action, if it's an, because I'm not perfect at it, but I know immediately when I take action, if it's something that is, acting from a place of things are red hot emotionally and i just want to get rid of my intense emotion by taking this action or if it's okay i've settled down i'm feeling this wise knowing feeling and then i take action that is my intuition and my instincts
0: that's awesome and then in your in one of the keys you also you say you mentioned moving forward no matter what, what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah,
2: so, yeah, so the, um, part of the book where I'm talking about that is where I'm talking about living with psychosis, and also writing papers to graduate from college. And that was a very dark time for me, and a very difficult time for me. But I just kept moving through it, because I had goals and dreams, you know, I mean, the first goal being I just wanted to graduate college. But I I just think that so there were so many times when I wanted to say, okay, I'm going to put my life on hold and just go into treatment. And that's it. And, and, you know, there are so many residential treatment centers for people to do that. But The key for me was living my life with a mental illness and figuring out in the world how to navigate life with it. And so I'm not anti-residential treatment centers. Some people need them and do really well. But in my experience, I found a lot more success when I had to move forward, even when I was experiencing psychosis or different challenges that I had.
1: Talk about dreams. Key number 11, you need to learn how to dream. What are some suggestions that you have about that? I mean, I know that sometimes you've had dreams and and maybe they crash or or they don't turn out the way you want to. Um, And I, I just wondered, what do you mean by learn how to dream or learn how to dream again, I guess?
2: Yeah, so I wrote this chapter because When I was in the mental health system for as long as I was, I lost my ability to dream. And any time I would eke out a little dream I had, I felt like I would have a provider or a parent or someone tell me that's not possible. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Which just happens outside of institutions, too. I mean, that happens everywhere, every day to a lot of people.
2: Absolutely, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I um, when I when I started dreaming again about what I wanted in life, the very first thing that came up for me, and this is what I experience when I'm working with others too, is the "you can't," and it slaps you right in the face. And I like to tell people that that's really normal, and to hold on to dreams despite that you know, and to push past the, I can't, because I really believe, and I've, I've seen other spiritual people talk about this too. If it's calling you and it's out there calling you in that way, if you're called to do something like that, it means that there's a reason for it. You know, it's not just random, like, you know, like one of my callings, I really felt was to help other people who are going through a mental health challenge. And I really believe that that dream was in my heart because it was meant to be in my heart so that I could do what I was meant to do, you know? So I just want to encourage people to dream and to not listen to that initial thing that slaps you right in the face and says, that's not possible. Because I really believe that you know, as someone living in recovery from a very serious mental health challenge, I did make the impossible possible, which was to live in recovery. And so I'm living proof that it can happen for folks, you know. And so that's what I mean when I say don't be afraid to dream.
1: What do we do about the stigma that mental health has right now? Has that is that changing at all? I mean, has has that changed in the past few years? It feels like there's been a little bit of a shift.
2: Yeah, you know, since 1996, when I was first diagnosed, there's absolutely been a shift. Um, I, you know, we didn't have celebrities coming out and talking about it in 1996. We didn't have, I remember when I searched for books on it, I found maybe one book and it was just someone's horror story about it. It wasn't like the encouragement and the recovery and all of mm. that. And now we definitely have a lot more people coming out, um, which is wonderful. And I I have a lot of hope in the younger generations because a lot of the people I know that are younger are open to therapy. They're open to talking about their journey. And it's, it's more in their vocabulary and and in their lexicon than it was for um, my age range and older. You know, I have relatives that are older than me who won't tell a soul about their experiences with mental illness. So, you know, I think it's getting better, but, you know, there is a um, doctor by the name of Dr. Patrick Corrigan, and he studies stigma. And what he said is that the way we erase the stigma is for everyday individuals to come out and talk about it. That's the only way it's going to get better. Not celebrities, because people don't see themselves in celebrities. It's for the everyday person to come out and share. And the more of us who do that and break through this, the more the stigma goes away.
0: I think that's really interesting. And I think also related to that, um, I haven't, um, so I'm a neuroscientist. I used to work um, with Ellen Sachs at USC, who's a professor of law, who has schizophrenia. She's written an amazing book. Um, And like we, in that space, you know, I'm thinking back, we never um, talked about spirituality. It's not very common for spirituality to come up um, when you're talking about mental health. But I know that there are some there's some research labs like um, at Yale looking at the overlap between folks who are extremely spiritual and then folks who are who, uh, like if they both hear things, um, as you mentioned, psychosis, but some use different frameworks to interpret it. But it's really not commonly um they're not spoken about together. So I I wanted to ask you about that. Do you find a lot of that is there is there literature that we're missing? Are there a lot of folks coming maybe it's an emerging space? That's um that's why I really liked your book because it was such an interesting um threading together of these two subjects that are not usually talked about together. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. So I um know that in the mental health care community more and more of us are talking about this. Um, I am in a lot of different professional organizations for peers and when I go to conferences, it's pretty common that you'll see um, people talking about spirituality and mental health um, together and how important they both are. I do see it, mm-hmm. but I don't see it so much outside of that. But where we do See it, and where it's so commonly accepted is with addiction recovery. Um, you know, we have the twelve-step programs and AA and all of the offshoots of that, where um, they are completely based on spirituality and recovery. So I hope that my book can kind of bridge a little bit and and be like, yeah, but it also works for people that have mental health challenges outside of addiction.
0: Um, so in some of your more difficult times, um what was maybe one of the most helpful things that someone did for you that they could help like a way that they helped you out that was just extremely helpful. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing was
2: I am really blessed in the parent department and i'm I'm not just saying that I, I have really, really great parents and they just, never gave up on me. And, you know, when you're going through watching a loved one suffer as significantly as I was, or, I mean, it was almost a period of a decade before I was really able to come out of it even a little bit, you know? And so the thing they did for me, besides just standing behind me, no matter what, and holding me up, which is amazing. But the thing they did that was the most significant is they kept constantly reminding me of two things. One was that this was not my fault, that it was an illness. And while some of my actions, I really believe I was responsible for, it wasn't my fault that I was living with bipolar and that I, I live with bipolar. Um, and so that was one thing. But they also, and this is very important, reminded me of who I was before I was experiencing bipolar disorder. And that was really important because I kind of lost myself in my experiences. And before, I'm lucky that before I was diagnosed, I had about, I would say, 16 years where I was relatively stable and living a relatively good life you know, so they kept reminding me of who that person was before I was diagnosed. And that was or before I started struggling, I should say, and that was really significant, because they always had the hope that I would return to be that person again. And they held the hope for me when I didn't have the hope for myself.
1: Well, as we wind things up here, Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about your, your planting seeds here now and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about planting seeds which is key number 14.
2: Sure, sure. So with planting seeds, we're talking a lot about how, you know, recovery is the kind of thing that can be passed on, you know. And when you when you meet someone and When I, I don't want to say you, when I meet someone and I see them struggling, I always like to plant the seed with them that recovery is actually absolutely possible. And the more people that I get to work with in my life coaching practice, the more people that I work with and watch them recover, the more they share that with the next person. And that's how recovery starts to spread, much like peace starts to spread, you know? So I really believe that planting seeds is really important. Planting seeds also means something else to me, which I um, wanted to share, which is really that um, when I was struggling the most, there were people that planted seeds in me that recovery was possible, you know? And so, I just really, um, and, and it didn't, they didn't take root right away. I wasn't convinced of it. But when I look back on it, I remember that there were people all along that really believed that I could get better. And it planted seeds within me that took root and blossomed later in life.
1: I want to emphasize just to step aside here for a second for folks like us who are dealing with mental illness. If you need mental health help, in cri- if you're in crisis or considering suicide, 988 is the number to call or text in the U.S. It's the Suicide and Crisis Hotline. I just feel like it's important to mention that from time to time just to let people know that there are resources out there to, to help them out.
2: Thank you for saying that. I think that's really important. And You know, in my book, in the back of my book, I do have a bunch of resources for um, people experiencing this. You are not alone.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Emily, it's been fantastic having you on Big Universe. Um, I, I have one final question. And What's one piece of advice you would give to someone who's dealing with mental issues right now, mental health issues right now?
2: I would tell them to never give up. Never, never, never give up because there is hope, there is help. And I am living proof that recovery happens and it's not just me, I'm not an anomaly here. You know, I wish that I could take people to some of the conferences I go to where there are literally hundreds if not thousands of people living in recovery. It happens all the time. It's just that our media does not focus on that and talk about that as much as it talks about people with mental illness in a negative way. And so I just want everyone to know, and it's something I really want to shout from the rooftops about, that it happens, that recovery really happens. And so, and the way I got to recovery was to never, never give up on myself. So that's where I would, that's the thing I would tell people.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. It's been a pleasure to have you on
2: you so much, Jim. It's been great talking to you and Mona
1: today. Emily Grossman is the author of the book Unlocked from Psych Hospital to Higher Self. Make sure you pick up this book now. You can also find out more information about Emily Grossman at emilygrossman.net. Is that right? Yep. Awesome. Fantastic. And Mona, it's been great having you on as a co-host today.
0: Yeah, this is a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Nice
0: to meet you, Emily. So great to meet
1: you too, Mona. Thanks and don't to forget her. to pick up Mona's book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomenon, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable, ineffable, I can pronounce that word, mysteries of the universe. Her website is phd.com That's a mouthful, Mona.
0: That's a a long title. I know you did great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To contact me, you can email me at jim at youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter with Mona Savani, and we'll talk with you next time on Big Universe.
0: Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you Create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.